Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, go with me to the book of Genesis. Uh, we started uh, last week a two-part message in Genesis chapter 12 and 13, and so that's where we're going to be today. If you uh, do not have a Bible with you and you would like to be able to uh, follow along with us in God's Word, there are Bibles that are in the chair racks in front of you. And Genesis is the very first book in the Bible, if you are unfamiliar with where things are in the Bible. And so if you make your way forward, you should find Genesis chapter 12 uh, pretty quickly. And also, I'll just say, if you don't own a Bible, but you'd like to, uh, feel free to walk out of here uh, with, with the one that you're uh, holding in your hands, as long as it's one you got from the chair rack. I would recommend you not steal somebody else's Bible here, in case that wasn't clear. We had a great, uh, great... Uh, afternoon at community camp yesterday. Thanks to all of you who served for that. It's uh, one of our favorite things to do um, each year together as a church family. Had a great time, and we had a first this year that I want to report happily to you. Nobody was injured. Uh, This is our first year without an injury, and so we're going to see if we can keep the streak alive uh, going into next year. So keep stretching out before community camp, and we'll see what we can do with this. Last week we started uh, into, as I said, Genesis chapter 12 and 13, and there's something significant that happens when we are moving through Genesis and we go from chapter 11 to chapter 12, and that significant thing that happens is there is a shift in focus. Up to this point, we have been looking at world history. And we've seen that through the creation of the world, how different cultures and languages and clans and nations develop. We see it in the genealogies that are given as they translate or as they they trace different families and the different lines of the different families and where they find themselves. But when we get to Genesis chapter 11 and then beginning in verse 10, we get a very specific genealogy and that genealogy is the line of Shem. Uh, Shem is one of Noah's sons. He had three sons. So one of Noah's sons. And what this genealogy does now is it it ignores the rest of of humanity and starts focusing in on, uh, on Shem and his line. And it traces that ten generations until we meet a man named Abram. Abram is traced ten generations from Shem. And now we are going to see a shift in focus from the world as a whole and everyone in it very specifically to a very small place of land in this world and then more specifically into a person who is going to become a family that is going to become a nation. And so now in verses 12 through 50, we're going to be tracing that thread throughout the rest of the book. So we've, we've zoomed in. Uh, on something very specific in a, a very specific area of the world. We said last week that, that God shows up and he gives all of these promises to a man named Abram. And those promises can basically be classified uh, in two ways. There's promises of land and there's promises of a lineage. There's a, a place and there is a people There are going to be descendants and a nation that are going to come from Abram. 
And so we might ask ourselves the question, okay, if God is going to appear to a person like Abram and give him these amazing promises, what kind of guy must Abram have been? I mean, he must have been out there killing it as a God follower. And yet the Bible actually tells us that Abraham is doing far from that. Abram is actually a pagan idolater, which means at best... Jehovah God is one in Abram's pantheon. And yet God chooses to appear to Abram. He hears his, his voice, what Martin Luther referred to as the naked voice of God. And without any sort of sign or wonder or anything, Abram hears God's voice to go to a land that he will show him. And Abram takes off, not knowing exactly where He's going. And I said last week that I wanted us to consider both last week and this week this truth. God's people respond to God's call by faith. God's people respond to God's call by faith. And last week I began pointing out four principles of a faith response to God's call from this passage. And I'll mention them briefly, but we don't have time to talk. About them, I, We saw last week, first of all, that faith is a gift that accompanies God's call. So whenever God calls a person from darkness to light, whenever God calls a person into relationship with himself, God must also supply a gift so that the person can respond to that call in the first place. And Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that even the faith that we exercise, even the faith that we put in God, is itself a gift from God that enables us to follow Him. Faith is a gift that always accompanies God's call. We saw in the second place that faith doesn't demand the destination before departing. And we saw the fact that, yes, God calls us to Himself, and then we begin a life of following Jesus, where each day we wake up and Jesus issues us the call, follow me, follow me. And one of the things that we want to do is say, I would love to follow you, where are we going? And Jesus says, I'm not going to tell you 99% of the time. You're going to have to follow me. I'm calling you into a relationship of trust with me. You don't need to know where you're going Or how we're going to get there, you just need to exercise faith and walk with me day by day, hour by hour, and know that you'll be cared for. So those are the first two principles of a faith response to God's call that I said I wasn't going to review and then reviewed. So we're off to a great start. But now, no, no story, no good story is without conflict. And as Abraham finds himself in the land, he soon realizes that that God's promises, these two major promises of a land and a lineage, a place and a people, both of these major categories of promises are going to be threatened. And what we're going to do is draw our our final two principles about a faith response to God's call. We're going to draw those Two principles from these two threats that are given here in chapter 12 and 13. The first obstacle to God's promises being fulfilled is an external threat. It's a threat outside of them. And it is a specific threat to the promise of descendants. Abraham and his family have traveled hundreds of miles... 
They're now situated in the land that God has promised to them. And so what do you think is going to happen? They're going to set up camp, maybe put up a fence, start growing some stuff. Okay, start to make this place our own like any of us would do if we had a piece of property. But when Abram settles down in the land that God has promised, the Bible tells us that a famine strikes. So put yourself in his shoes for a minute. Put yourself in his family's shoes for a minute. You've, you've left, Genesis 12 tells us at the beginning, you've left family and kindred and country. You've, you've walked away from a lot... And now, God owes it to you to make everything work out, right? That's the way we, we often think about it. Okay, God, I'm going to obey you. I'm going to follow your voice. Now it's your turn to make things go the way I want. So Abram finds himself here in the land, but rather than everything just going perfectly, a famine strikes. Even the strongest faith might begin asking the question, did I really hear the voice of God? Was this move to this place I've never been, was this a mistake? Was dragging my family all the way out here in a faith response to God's call, was this the wrong decision? And verse 10 tells us that this famine is not some minor thing. This famine is so severe that they are going to have to leave the land that they've just traveled all this way to. They're going to have to leave this land and go to Egypt. So, once again, put yourself in Abram's shoes. Put yourself in the family's shoes. What are your, going, what are your biggest fears going to be if you're going to have to travel to Egypt to find famine relief? Well, I can think of a whole list of fears. Uh, we're Chaldeans. We're going to Egypt. What if we're not able to communicate with these people? What if, for some reason, Egyptians don't like Chaldeans? What if we get there and they refuse us? What if they, what if they don't have enough for us? What if we run out of money? Where, what if we don't know how the exchange rate between the land we're living in and the Egyptian currency? Where are we going to stay when we get there? How long are we going to be there? I mean, the list of fears might go on and on and on. If you're, if you're in his situation and you're going to have to move to Egypt. But the biggest fear that Abram has is, if you haven't read the story, one that you wouldn't guess in a million years. Out of all the fears that Abram has, it's not that he might have car trouble along the way or that he might not have a place to stay or any of the fears we might have. His biggest fear is that his wife is too gorgeous. That's the fear. His wife is just too beautiful. Look at Genesis chapter 12 and verse 11. It says, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. So far, so good, Abram. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they'll let you live. Say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. 
So out of all the concerns that Abram could have as he's moving into this land to find famine relief, his biggest concern is that his wife is just too doggone beautiful. Now, I'll just say, guys, uh, some hints here for your next anniversary card or something like that. You might try out one of these lines. Baby, you're so gorgeous, you make me afraid for my life. That's one. If you don't want to take her out, Say, I'd love to take you out to dinner, but you're too beautiful. I'm fearful for my life. Let's stay. Let's not go out, and you can make something for us. Ah, see, somebody's already identified the problem with that. (laughs) Do the first one. Baby, you're so gorgeous, you make me afraid for my life. Try that one out and see how that goes. The way Abram sees it, his life is in danger if they go to Egypt. And he's thinking, I'm never going to receive the promises that God has made to me if I'm dead. Which is a a fair logical train. I can't have the promises if I'm not here to experience the promises. So he asks Sarai to lie about their relationship And say that she's his sister so that they don't kill him and take her. And I'll just say as an aside, we're not going to find this out until chapter 20. But this is only a partial lie because Sarai is his half-sister, which is anew. uh, But that's what it is. Now, this is not a good look for Abram, right? Abram, Abram feels like his life is at risk. And because his life is at risk, he decides he's going to put his wife at risk. But here's the thing about his fear. He is totally not wrong. She's that gorgeous. She's basically uh, uh, taken into Pharaoh's harem. And, And Abram is paid quite well in exchange for that. So one of the things we're always trying to do, so we're always, we're always dealing with the Sunday school version of the, story, the Bible stories we've heard, and then we're like, oh my goodness, you left some details out. <laughs> and these are some of the details that get left out of the Sunday school version. Uh, Abram abandoning his wife to Pharaoh's harem and getting paid very well for it. It's not a good look, but God has more of an interest in keeping his promises to Abram than Abram realizes. God has far more an interest in keeping his promises to Abram than Abram realizes because his promises to Abram are about far more than Abram. God is doing far more in this situation than just what's going on in Abram's life. And so the Bible goes on to tell us this in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Uh, We don't know exactly 
how Pharaoh comes to realize what's going on. The Bible doesn't tell us. Uh, it, it's giving us a very compressed version of the story here. But the bottom line is Pharaoh figures it out through whatever means. And there is a confrontation with Abram. And Abram and Sarai and their family are sent packing back out of Egypt. That's, that's the story. Now, before we, uh, before we talk about this third principle about a faith response to God's call, I just want to point out something that's really interesting here. Okay, I believe that Moses this is the one who wrote the Pentateuch, Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And Moses has, in, a, in essence, put a little Easter egg in here for us. He's, he's done something really interesting because when you read the story and you hear about plagues... Does that strike any bells with you? Does that ring any bells with you about some potential plagues that are going to happen to Pharaoh's household? Well, if you've got any Bible knowledge, and even if you don't have much, you've probably heard about the, the plagues. And what Moses, who has been a part of the Exodus and who is writing this, is ba- basically presents this as the Exodus in miniature. Let me give you the parallels What we have here is the people of God seeking famine relief in Egypt. Well, that's what's going to happen. The people of God are going to, once again, seek famine relief in Egypt. We have Pharaoh possessing something that does not belong to him. We have plagues coming on the Pharaoh's household for possessing something that doesn't belong to him. We have Pharaoh having an angry confrontation and sending away the people out from his presence back to their homeland. And we have the people going back to their homeland richer than when they left it. Do you think that's an accident? Moses is giving us a preview of the Exodus and showing us a parallel in this very story. Well, obviously, in this first incident that is going to be an obstacle, it's going to potentially jeopardize God's promises, we don't see the best of Abram. We don't want to... We don't, want to, we don't want to set up our biblical characters as heroes that need to be followed in every way. The biblical characters, all the way through the Bible, every single one of them is a real person like you, which means they're deeply flawed. And Abram is no exception to this. He resorts to lies and manipulation, even to the point of putting his own wife at risk to get the promises that God has uh, given to him. But this is instructive for us as we consider a third principle about a faith response to God's call. And that third principle is this. Faith seeks God's will, God's way. Faith seeks God's will, God's way. Abram believes that he has to do something to protect God's promises. Abram believes that he has to take matters into his own hands if he's going to ultimately achieve these great and precious promises that God has given him. He wants God's will, but as we saw through this this, uh, story that we've been just 
that we've just uh, been told. He wants God's will, but he doesn't try to achieve God's will in God's way. He's taking matters into his own hands. And as Christians, we too are constantly tempted to take matters into our own hands. We see, the Bible, the New Testament tells us, there's, there's many great and precious promises that God has given to us. I mean, start thumbing through the Bible, and you're going to see the many great and precious promises that God has made to us. But sometimes in our walk of faith, when we see that those promises appear to be threatened, we take matters into our own hands. I see God's will. I want God's will. But I'm going to have to make God's will happen in my way. Now, how, do, how might we do that? I could, give you, I could give you a ton of examples, but let me just give you one to kind of get your thinking going so you can think about this and apply, have, have the Spirit apply this to your own heart and your own situation. One, uh, one uh, way that God's will for us, there's all kinds of things about God's will that we don't know for our lives. You know, which car to buy or which job to take. There are all kinds of things where we don't know God's specific will in a given area. But one thing that God has said very specifically is his will for every Christian without exception is your sanctification. This is the will of God, even your sanctification. What is sanctification? Sanctification is you... Christian, follower of Jesus, person who has been born again, who has the Spirit of God residing within you, it is God's will that you be made holy. That's what sanctification is, to be made holy. You could say it in other terms. Sanctification is the, is the certain process of every believer without exception being perfectly conformed to the image of Christ. That's your destiny, I don't know everything about your destiny. I don't know where the road of life is going to take you. But one thing I can say for sure on the assurance and authority of Scripture is that every single Christian in here is going to become exactly like Christ, which is pretty amazing. And the Bible speaks of, it talks about this will, uh, this is being God's will for us, but it also talks about how certain that will is for us. Your sanctification, your, your conformity to your perfect conformity to the image of Christ is so certain that the Bible can speak about it in the past tense. It can say things like, You have been sanctified. Now, obviously, we are struggling in the middle of the sanctification process. Okay, we have been you might say positionally sanctified, considered sanctified before God, and yet we are moving towards a greater experience of holiness. But, but this is a promise that God has directly given to us. But here's the problem. And I don't know if this is the problem for, for all of us equally, but part of the problem in this promise is that God is not moving at the speed we would like. When I look at my own heart, and I look at my own thoughts, look at my own actions, I think sometimes you are 43 years old, and you are still doing that. You have been a Christian 
for more than two decades, shouldn't you be here, Matt, rather than here? So we, we feel the internal struggle of, okay, it's God's will that I be sanctified, but man, we're moving at like glacier speeds. Let me, let me put more of the frustration on it for you. I'm looking around at the people around me, and I sure wish that some of you guys would be a little bit more sanctified. <laughs> okay, you have an argument at the house, not that I assume other people do this, not in my family, but other people's families are less sanctified than mine. You have an argument at the house and you think, I sure wish that whole sanctification thing was happening at a, let's, let's get this going. When it comes to the, 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 the killing of the flesh, to use a Bible term, the, the sin nature that's within us, both in our own hearts, which we are so frustrated and discouraged by, and both in the lives of the people around us, God has not gotten the memo about the speed at which we would like to be traveling. And so we sometimes will seek God's will outside of God's way. We are by by nature, legalists. <laughs> if, if the spirit isn't going to do the trick, I've got some rules that will help you out. <laughs> we can create or have the tendency to create all sorts of rules and regulations that are either non-biblical or outright unbiblical so that we can ensure that God's promises of our sanctification are kept. And if the spirit's not going to do it for you, I will. If the Spirit's not going to do it in my life, well, I'll figure out how to get the job done myself. And so Colossians 2, Paul is talking about things like do not, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle all of the rules that we make up to help God keep his promises. Now, let me be clear. The Bible speaks of things that we are to refrain from doing as Christians. I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about all the other things that sometimes get added on top of it to help God do a better job, a quicker job. But Colossians chapter 2 and verse 23 goes on to say this, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. Oh, okay. In promoting self-made religion. Okay, that's not good. And asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now, what we were hoping it might say is they are of, they're not everything, but they're of some value. You can, you can hide yourself away in the furthest monastery on top of the biggest mountain. You can put around yourself every kind of rule and regulation that you want. You can go so far as a person like, like Martin Luther who is literally beating his own back in his pursuit of being right with God. But none of those things have any value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Because the only thing that can really beat the flesh is the spirit. And the spirit works at a pace in my life and in yours that is slow, and deliberate, and steady. 
which means that we ought to have some more grace with each other. Some of us are working with an internal measuring system of all the people around us, and I have an idea of where each one of you should be on my internal scale. And if you ain't there, I'm going to help you. <laughs> might drag you. We would do well to, to be more gracious with those around us, and we would do well to be more gracious with ourselves. Not that we don't hate sin, not that we don't want to fight sin with every fiber of our being, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how hard you are on yourself and what kind of rules you create for yourself. The Spirit is the one that does the work of sanctifying. And listen, this is the great thing. You don't have to go outside of God's way to receive God's promises. If you have come to faith in Christ, it doesn't look like it when you measure it from day to day. It certainly doesn't look like it from hour to hour. It doesn't look like it from week to week. It doesn't even look like it sometimes from year to year. Five years, 10 years, 15 years, 50 years of walking with Jesus, he is accomplishing his promise for you. And one day, you're going to look Jesus in the face and be like him because you see him as he is. So, faith seeks God's will, God's way. But there's a second obstacle that we see now in chapter 13. The second obstacle is not a threat to the promise of descendants. This is a threat to the promise of the land. And it is admittedly a smaller threat. There will be larger threats that loom um, as the history goes on. But the second obstacle is an obstacle from within that is a threat to the promise of the land. We've got in chapter 13, Abram and his people returning from Egypt to a sort of desert area in the southern region of what's going to become the nation of Israel. Verse 2 tells us that at this point, uh, Abram is extremely wealthy. He is, in all likelihood, a semi-nomadic man, which would explain all the travel that's going around in the area as they seek pastures for their flocks and their livestock. He returns to the hill country where he had first entered the land. He returns to the altar where, that he had first built to worship the Lord. But the Bible tells us that there is trouble in paradise. And the trouble is between Lot, his nephew, uh, a man that he likely feels some degree of responsibility for because his brother, uh, Lot, I'm sorry, Lot is his brother's son and his brother has passed away. So he likely feels some responsibility for the welfare and the well-being of Lot, but he and Lot are starting to have conflict. And the problem is that they're they have both grown so rich that they can't occupy the same pasture lands for their extensive uh, livestock, and so they're at odds with each other as they're they're jockeying for resources. Abram doesn't want this kind of conflict to go on with Lot, so he proposes that they go their separate ways, and he does something that's kind of surprising, because God has promised this land specifically to Abram. A Lot is, in some sense, along for the ride, but Abram tells Lot that he can have his pick. Look around. Figure out where you want to settle, and I'll just go wherever you aren't. 
That's the agreement that they come to. And so the Bible says this in verse 10 of chapter 13. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. There's an Eden reference so that they, these people know about Eden. The, garden, uh, the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Okay, so we've got Lot choosing uh, where he's going to go, taking the best of the land for himself, and we've kind of had this ominous note from several chapters ago about this is where Sodom and Gomorrah are. It's kind of foreshadowing a big event that's going to happen here. And the Bible tells us that, that Lot is, is, is choosing to, to put his dwelling place right up next to Sodom. And so we've got kind of a, another little breadcrumb here that says, I bet something significant is going to happen with this, this decision. Abram, though, has been magnanimous in allowing Lot to, to live where he wants to live, but in some ways it seems like he's gotten the short end of the bargain, right? This is his land, and now his land is being divided and being given to somebody else. But God has something that he wants to say to Abram in verses 14 to 17, and I just want you to put yourself in his sandals again. And imagine God saying something like this to you. Verse 14. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look. Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. I'm not going to try to point those directions because I have no idea which directions they are from where I'm standing. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Okay, he's just broken off a chunk and handed the best of it to somebody else and God comes to him and says, lift up your eyes and look at the mountains and the deserts and the water and the pasture lands. Look at all of it and just know that I'm going to give it to you and your family forever. And not only am I going to give it to you and your family forever, but your family is going to be as numerous. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the dust of the earth if you could begin the project of counting the dust. Now he's using hyperbole here to make the point that your offspring, Abram, your descendants are going to be uncountable. So get up, walk the property. I'm going to give the whole thing to you. And this leads us to the fourth principle that I would like to draw out about a faith response to God's call. And it's this in the fourth place. Faith 
gives what it cannot keep to gain what it cannot lose. Faith gives what it cannot keep to gain what it cannot lose. Now, hopefully, somebody is saying, wow, that is a well-put phrase. And I need you to know it's not original with me. (laughs) Most of the time, if you think, wow, that's really well put, assume it's a quote. This is a quote from a missionary by the name of Jim Elliott, who many of you may have heard of, who, along with four other missionaries, was martyred trying to get the gospel into some of the deepest reaches of South America. It's something that he said before he left, and it is absolutely true. Let's, do, let's take a moment to review what's gone on in Abram's life to get to this point and this moment where God is saying, hey, look every direction. See the whole thing. Walk it. Walk, walk it all the way from top to bottom, left to right, front to back, in and out. Walk the whole thing because it's going to be yours. But look at what Abram has had to do to get to this point. Abram has had to give up his family, his extended family, his country. A lot of giving up. When he gets to the land, one of the major events that's recorded for us is he immediately has to leave because this fantastic land can't even feed him. So he goes to Egypt where his wife is, he gives up his wife to save himself. And then he comes back. And, you know, it's like we can deal with everything outside of us as long as, as, as long as the inside's good. But once you start having internal conflict, that's when things really start falling apart. Now he's at odds with his, his nephew, Lot, and the conflict is so great that they're not even able to figure it out. They've just said, you know what, let's go our separate ways so we don't get into a war. And he's given Lot the best place to live in the land that he's been promised and it seems like, from, from an earthly perspective at this moment, I am giving up a lot more than I'm getting. <laughs> I followed God, and because I did that, it's supposed to work out, right? I mean, that's the way, that's the way all of us tend to think. I'm going to follow you, Jesus, and you're going to see how great of my faith is and how great my following is. And when you see that, you owe it to me then to hold up your end of the bargain of making this thing work. That's where Abram is at right now. As I said, at times Abram probably feels like he's losing more than he's gaining. But through the eyes of faith, Abram could not only see what he had to give up, but what he stood to gain. And God had to remind him. God had to show up and say, take a walk, spin around 360 degrees because every bit of this is going to belong to you and your descendants. And this is hard for Abram to believe because you keep talking about descendants, God, and and maybe we could have one. Let's have, I, I believe you, But we're not trending towards descendants. This is going the wrong direction. And I'm getting older. But 
faith gives what it cannot keep to gain what it cannot lose. And this story reminds us of that. I said last week, I've reviewed it with you this morning, I'll say it again. Jesus, first of all, does, there's an act of God whereby he calls us into relationship with himself, gives us the very gift of faith to trust him. Then Jesus asks us, in the big things and in the small things, Day in and day out, he invites us to a relationship where he says, follow me. Jesus calls us to follow him. And, and Jesus knows that for, if we're going to follow him, there are going to be some things that we have to give up to follow him the way he deserves and wants to be followed. So Jesus had some things to say just like we learned some things from Abram, Jesus has some things to say to us about not holding on too tightly to the things that we have. There's a verse in Luke chapter 12, verse 33, that I didn't really want to put into the sermon because I like to preach things that I feel like I'm good at. And putting this in here, I don't feel good at this. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 33, Jesus said this, Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, but the treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. I don't think Jesus is saying that to be a Christian, we must take a vow of poverty and sell all of our things to give to the needy and then live in poverty the remainder of our days. So we have to hear all the things that the Bible says about this subject. But these are hard words. <laughs> because we got a lot of possessions. And I don't have nearly as many as I want. Our assumption is that life is going to get better and better and bigger and bigger and nicer. And I'm going to be able to take step after step after step until I cross into the great beyond. Now, there's nothing wrong with having more. And God blesses some of us with a lot, and he blesses some of us with a little, and all of that is good and right. But what, the, what the Bible does ask us to do, what Jesus does ask all of us to do, is to hold on to the stuff that we have a little bit more loosely. <laughs> Spend a little bit less time compiling a list of all the things that we still want to get. And to spend more time investing in that which, which cannot be taken. You can't invest in what can't be taken 
if you're spending all your time thinking about how to get one more thing. And I'm preaching this to myself because my first thought whenever I have a little bit of extra money is, ooh, what can I do for myself? (laughs) What thing do I want? Faith gives what it can't keep to gain what it can't lose. And what Jesus is begging us to do is to to invest in something beyond the here and now. He's He's, he's, he's trying to break our, 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 our gaze and our grip on the shiny thing that I can actually see and touch and hold and feel secure and happy with. And he's trying to get me to let go of that thing or those things so that I can actually have something that is really secure and it's hard because the things that aren't really that are really secure are not as shiny. Now, how can we take this attitude? Well, it's it's all based on something Jesus said just one verse previous. In verse thirty-two of Luke chapter twelve, Jesus says this before he says. Hey, sell your possessions, invest in something eternal. He says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The kingdom is better than the next thing. The kingdom is better than the next upgrade. The kingdom is better better than financial security. Hey, if you can have financial security, that is a great and good blessing from God. But I've got a backup plan. (laughs) And it's the kingdom. (laughs) Faith gives what it cannot keep to gain what it cannot lose. You and I haven't been given the same promises that Abram was given. You and I are the realization of the promises that Abram was given. You know those descendants that he talked about are as numerous as the dust of the earth? That just happens to be you. We'll talk more about that in coming weeks. We haven't been given the exact same promises that Abram was given, but we have been given a pocket full of our own promises. He has told us, his little flock, that it is his good pleasure, not something begrudging that he does, but it is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And so it's like Jesus says sometimes, open up your Bible, start paging through it, start flipping through, and look to the north, and look to the south, and look to the east, and the west, Take a walk in it, walk the whole property, because little children, every single promise in there is yours. I'm going to give you the whole kingdom. And that'll help you let go of the chintzy, glitzy things that are so important to us now. Followers of Jesus, what God is asking you to do is to let go of that which you can't have anyway. 
to get what you can't lose. And, little flock, you are going to get what's coming to you. Every single bit. So, maybe you're here with us this morning and you're, sounds like crazy talk. (laughs) You're wondering why people like us would give our lives to Jesus. But I'll tell you that the answer to that is the reason we give our lives to Jesus is because he gave his life to us. Apart from Jesus, we can have everything in this world, everything that has to offer. And Jesus says stuff like, what does it profit you to get the whole thing and lose your soul? And we're here this morning wanting to give our lives to Jesus, doing it imperfectly, having him sometimes pull it out of our our white-knuckled grasp. But we're willing to do that because Jesus has given himself to us. We are deserving of, of death. We are deserving of God's wrath. We are deserving of God's punishment. And yet he, because he sent his son Jesus to live and die and be resurrected, has given us life. And so, friend, if you are here with us this morning, we would encourage you to do what we have done. To repent of the sins which are killing you. To let go of the stuff that's dragging you to the bottom of the ocean. To put your faith and your trust in Christ. And you can do that right there where you are sitting right now. For the rest of us, let's pray and ask God to work this sanctifying, making us holy change that only he can do. Lord, you know that it would be hypocritical of me of the highest order to stand up in front of this flock and act like I am not enamored with the world. So I pray that you would help us together to let go of what won't last so that we can take, of hold, take hold of something which cannot be taken from us. Lord, I pray that the the things of earth truly would grow strangely dim to us, as the old hymn says, in the light of your glory and grace. I pray that you would build our faith and that as we wake up tomorrow morning, we'd hear your voice again that says, today, follow me. And that we would simply go wherever you take us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.